Coming up right now, the newest episode from Carr, Gwyn, and Ode on Three Pagans and a Cat. Hey folks, CJ Grimm here from Poking Dead Things. It's a hard job doing what we do, and it can get kind of gross. We know that you work hard too, so I'm here to tell you that at the end of a hard day, nothing beats a hot bath and a cold beer. So treat yourself right and head to Twisted Willow Soap Company and indulge in a bath bomb with your favorite six-pack. Remember, the only girly thing about a bath bomb are the sounds you're going to make in excitement. Twisted Willow Soap Company. Body. Mind. Soul. One of the most fascinating things about the African traditional religions is that, as living and continuous systems, they are constantly evolving to meet the demands of a devout audience. Welcome to our community, Lilith Dorsey, the 86th episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. Our opening today is courtesy of our guest, author and voodoo priestess Lilith Dorsey. You may call me Ode. You can call me Carr. I'm Ode's father. Mary Meet. My name is Gwyn, Ode's mother. We gotta do housekeeping. We gotta do housekeeping. Yep. Yes, yep. Two new cats are Aliska Durka and Dale Harvey. Welcome to our cats. We love yes. you. Thank you, especially Thank you in this hard cats. time. And to our two new hunters, Melissa Varner, Chimina Kokoro. Welcome good to effort. our new hunters. Thank <laughs> you making the, the name sound sort of right. <laughs> And we do want to say we love you to all of our patrons and, of course, all of our listeners. Right. Yes. And consequently, we have some announcements we need to make right here yep. uh, during housekeeping. That's right. So for starters, we don't have any events coming up, obviously. Right. Obviously. But, um, because we're staying at home like everyone should be. We're doing right. We're practicing social distancing. Appropriate social distancing. That's right. But something we're doing for the Pride is we are opening up the – patron locked discord channels mm-hmm. until widespread social distancing ends basically that's right, right. which could be a bit yeah yep that's right uh, so anyone who is on the discord server it doesn't matter if you're a patron the recording channel is going to be open to all listeners and the patron questions channel is going to be open to everyone who wants to be here with us um, discussing and asking questions while we're recording. That's exactly. right. So yep. if you don't, if you're not a member of the Discord, you can find a link to the Discord at threepagansandacat.com. Mm-hmm. That's the number three, threepagansandacat.com. And on this episode. And yep. on this episode, go ahead and join the Discord. So if you want to join us live for our recording every Saturday. Every Saturday at 7 p.m. EST. That's right. We would love to have you all there. And it's just one small way that we can so try stay to connected. stay connected. Yeah, exactly. Stay connected and give you something to do. Yeah. <laughs> that said, also on Sundays mm-hmm. until this whole mess is over, I will be doing live Zoom hangouts mm-hmm. at 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern Standard. So feel free to find the Zoom link. It is on our Three Pigs and a Cat page and group. Mm-hmm on Facebook and you can just click on that and you don't need a webcam squeaky. You can come in just audio. That's right. Um, you don't have to show your picture. You can go either uh, way. You can come in be, your PJs and nobody will care because right. you don't have to be on camera. Exactly. So no um, it's no just judgment. a time to kind of hang out and talk and try to make sure that 
we can, for those of us who are extroverts. Yeah, Carr's an extrovert, and this has been a struggle for Very, him. very hard for him. Wynn and I are doing fine, because we're introverts, and my, my daily routine has changed very little. If anything. Carr is really struggling. If anything, it's been a little hard on me having him home all day. Because <laughs> I can't do the shit that I normally would do during the day, because Carr is home. <laughs> Going to the brewery, but just not shit to do. So, you know, we all have our struggles with this, but we do have to get through it together. And so people And it's and it's important for us to sort of keep spirits up so that we don't make mistakes like breaking quarantine. Exactly, exactly. And we've been very grateful that, you know, people checking in on us, uh, listeners have been checking in on us, and we've been trying to check in on you guys and friends, of course, and family through Facebook and all the different avenues that we have. So one other thing we wanted to mention is... Uh, we know things are tight for people right now That's financially. Right. That's right. Um, they're tight for us financially. Yes. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's feeling Everybody's the feeling it right now. Yep. So we know things are tight right now. We really appreciate all the support you guys give us on Absolutely. Patreon. But please remember that you have no obligation to support us on Patreon. If you need that money for bills or food or whatever, we would or just much, for a buffer, we would much rather you, you cancel your subscription mm-hmm. yep. to us on Patreon and take care of yourselves right now. That's right. We will all get through this. We will continue to do weekly episodes. That's right. We will always be here for you guys. The Patreon support is nice, but it's not why we're doing this. That's right. And we want you guys to look after yourselves first, okay? Right. Absolutely. So, always yourselves first. Please okay? remember that. Yep. Do not feel bad if you need to cancel your your Patreon subscription. With Absolutely. Us. It won't hurt our feelings. No, nope. nope. we won't get upset. In fact, we will, you know, we've kind of been expecting it to uh-huh. happen. And we've been amazed by those of you who've been so generous to us in this difficult time. Right. Mm-hmm. So we just wanted you guys to know that we're here. We love you. And whatever you need to do to take care of yourself and your family, mm-hmm. you do that. Yep. Yep. So... I think, I think that's it. all our housekeeping. That's so it. We are house kept. And now, and now we get on to the favorite part of the of this whole the thing. Real part of the the real part that I have been excited about for a while now because yeah. we've been able to make this work with them. We have Lilith Dorsey with us. So, mm-hmm. Ode, would you like to do a little introduction of our guest? So, Lilith Dorsey has been part of the pagan and specifically the voodoo community for several decades. They have written multiple books. And currently, the book that is going to be coming out on May 1st, uh, and which we're here to talk about, is Orishas, Goddesses, and Voodoo Queens, Mm -hmm. the Divine Feminine in the African Religious Traditions. That's right. Lilith, welcome welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Hey, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Or there, or wherever I am. <laughs> from, from far away. From far away, through, through Zoom. Uh-huh. <laughs> through the magic of Zoom. Through the magic of Zoom. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into your practice, mm-hmm. and what um, your path was. What your path was, your path. and how you got to where you are now. Well, I always start with my parents named me Lilith, so I was kind of pagan from the very beginning. A lot of people think I took that name, but uh, that's the one that was given to me. So I always sort of had an interest in witchcraft. They weren't necessarily, you know, witches proper. They didn't belong to a coven or anything, but they were sort of solitary pagans and had a great respect for the goddess in all her forms. 
And I think that just by incorporating some of those values as I was growing up, I always sort of, you know, I had media icons growing up, even though I'm of a certain age, but, you know, things that I knew that there were spiritual forces and that just sort of seemed natural to me. So I did that until I was in college. And then I was pregnant with my daughter and one of my anthropology teachers told me there was no such thing as witchcraft in the United States. And there was no such thing as, you know, witches or magic and that was all like something that had died out hundreds of years ago and I got tired of listening to you know yet another idiotic white male so I decided (laughs) I was going to do some of this research and uh, you know prove him wrong and that's when I started more formalized training I guess I belong to the Buddhist spiritual temple in New Orleans on Rampart Street with priestess Miriam Chimani and I've belonged to them for oh geez let me think now 20 six years, 28 years. It's their 30th anniversary this year. So um, I'm really proud to say that, you know, she's been there for a long time doing some great work. And, uh, you know, over the years, I run my own spiritual house now here in Brooklyn called the House of Mama Brigitte. And I've got a lot of God kids. And it's nice to be able to to really sort of turn around and give something back to the next generation. That's very cool. So we don't know a whole lot about voodoo necessarily, and I don't think our audience knows a whole lot about voodoo. Because Carr is a druid, Ode is a heathen, Uh and I'm a green witch. So we don't don't, don't really have a a hook into that community. The only (laughs) hook I think we have into it is that we're friends with 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 Utu and and with Kenya. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So so we have some friends, but we don't have like close interactions, I think with, with that, with the spiritual part of that community. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm always hesitant to talk about things I don't, understand well because I don't want to screw up. So can you tell us a little bit about what a house is and how you get initiated into one, what that process is like? And about New Orleans voodoo Mm because that's what you practice, you said, right? Yes, yes, I practice New Orleans voodoo. I mean, New Orleans voodoo, there's a little bit of everything. It's kind of a gumbo of things, which is what I think was really appealing to me. I grew up in a lot of different traditions, you know, just ancestrally, you know. I mean, yes, obviously, African-American tradition, but also my grandmother was Scottish. And, uh, you know, so there was a lot of that kind of folk magic that was taught to me growing up. Native American as well. There was a lot of those principles that was taught to me when I was growing up. So the fact that there's a more, I guess, myriad of different ways to practice in New Orleans always sort of appealed to me. You know, there are a lot of things I think that are... Oddly enough, I think there are a lot of similarities, you know. I've been good friends with Diana Paxson for a long time, talking about heathens and Norse kinds of things. And Diana, I mean, she tells people this, you know, she belonged to a Brazilian spiritual house. I mean, and when I say house, it's kind of like a just a spiritual family and organization. So there's a lot of things that were very similar. When we would get together, we would sort of compare things and, and how we do things and that kind of stuff. So, but initiate. I mean, I think probably most people would recognize it as being very similar to a kind of, we start with a baptism or a, in my house, we call it a head washing, literally. So you're going to get your head cleansed off and that's sort of a recognition and a protection that you get from the spirits. It's kind of an initiation, but it's kind of not, if that makes sense, in the same way that like if you get baptized into Christianity, you're not necessarily, oh my gosh, you know, there's still other things you have to do down the road in order to be a good quote unquote Christian. This, the system is sort of the same that, you know, this is just a beginning. This is just sort of a welcoming 
healing. It's a protection where you're actually recognized by the energies, the spirits, the loa, the orisha that we're working with. And then it goes on to, again, depending on what kind of training that you're getting from your priest or priestess, what your initiations are going to look like from that time on. But I think what's different from the traditions that you're talking about is that there's a lot of very formalized things. And the other thing that most people don't understand is sometimes it costs a lot of money because there's a lot of things that have to happen, which I know a lot of witches don't sort of really understand that sometimes that this initiation is going to cost a couple of thousand dollars, but that's usually what happens. It's not an opportunistic thing. It's just that, you know, a lot of people have to come and a lot of people have to be fed and a lot of things have to be prepared. And, and, you know, it's very intense. It's, it's not just like, oh, you know, we're going to grab this and grab that and do whatever. It's it's very planned and, and it has to be a certain way because that's how it's been done for four or five, six hundred years. Kind of like a wedding. It's just going to cost money. Yeah, it is kind of like a wedding. Yeah, you invite a whole bunch of people and stuff has to happen and there's a lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> there's just a lot of tradition that, have to, that, that you have to hit and we live in, under capitalism. So those things cost money. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I've definitely heard stories from the elders in the tradition where, you know, at one time you would just go and live with the people that you were studying with and you would sort of, instead of working a day job, you'd work for them all day, you know, and and there was that kind of exchange rather than a financial exchange. It was an exchange of time and effort and, and you know, mm-hmm. physical work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that in the Christian church, Mm-hmm. It would cost a whole lot for a baptism there mm-hmm. if they weren't getting the tithe every, yeah. every yeah. you know every service that they did. So it would be different if like you know people tithed into paganism or into voodoo mm-hmm. or into druidry. Mm-hmm. Nobody does any of that. So yeah. Now I know that Haitian voodoo is different from New Orleans voodoo. Would you yes. consider both of those uh, religions? to be closed religions, like people have to be invited into them, or if someone's interested, they find a teacher. How does that work? Because that's something we've discussed before on the podcast, because as Odin we don't really know. My impression is you can't really be solitary in the same way that you can in other traditions, right? Like, I wasn't initiated into heathenry. No, no, you're exactly right. That's that's really you have to find a teacher because there's a lot of things. Again, like you were talking about tradition, a lot of things that have to get handed down from teacher to student. And it really is like a parent relationship, you know what I mean, in in a good way. You know, it has to be somebody that you trust and you can go to with problems. You said I could say anything on the podcast. I had one of my God kids once and I was on the, I was on a podcast on my phone and they texted me. They were like, I think I have a venereal disease. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, it was so hard to just not like, Oh, wait, uh, okay. They can't see this on the podcast. I'm just going to answer this person later <laughs> and go on. <laughs> oh my God. But it really, is a thing where you you have to tell them everything. You know what I mean? Like you have to tell them the good, the bad, the ugly, because they really do help you with every aspect of your life. You know, that's an extreme and, you know, they didn't have it. So it was all good. But uh, that was an extreme situation. But it has to be like, oh, you know, here's a good thing that's going to happen. You know, one of my godkids, I did their wedding, you know, and I've been there when they have good times. I've been there when they have bad times. It's really is like a family, you know, and 
even within the house, you know, the family members support each other too. A couple of my God kids are quarantined together right now because they're roommates. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like that you can support each other in every way, you know, and it's really nice. And I find it, I find it really comforting, you know, because some of us don't always have the bio families that are supportive and understanding and helpful in ways that we need them to be. And I say that, you know, with as much love and understanding as possible, you know, but it's nice to know that there are other people out there that can provide that kind of support in a family way, in a non-judgmental way. So really, your your practice, your religion, is it encompasses your entire life, not just one aspect. Because I think for a lot of people, whether it's witchcraft or some other tradition, there's some compartmentalization that mm-hmm. happens. But it sounds like maybe that's not the case with New Orleans voodoo. No, I don't I don't think it's the case with any of the ATRs or African traditional religions, you know what I mean? There's usually daily offerings that have to happen to the ancestors. There's sort of just always being conscious on some level of your part in the universe and the, your part in the spiritual forces that surround you. We talk a lot about ashe, which I kind of call it if people are used to the concept of chi, like tai chi or something, it's a universal energy force that permeates mm-hmm. all things. So ashe for us, everything can have ashe. You know, you can have, I have gold behind me, like the ashe of the Arisha Oshun is gold. She's the energy of gold. She is present when you have a piece of gold. She's present in the river. She's present when you see her sacred animals like a peacock or a hippo, you know, some of the other things that she really holds dear to herself so that when we attune ourselves to these forces, we get ourselves in better cosmic alignment of what we're supposed to be doing and where we're supposed to be headed and how we sort of, you know, can navigate life. That's very cool. I think that's very, very cool. It's time for Gwen's Garden Gems. So today, what I'm going to be talking about is lemon. Mm, good call. Yep, yep, because lemon is a really excellent, excellent, well, not herb, but <laughs> it's a fruit a that you plant. can use. A good plant. It's not something, um, obviously, that everyone can grow mm-hmm. because it has specific requirements. We would struggle to have We would struggle tree. to have, although different, there are some uh, companies that have created hardier, hardier lemons that can yeah. be grown in a pot on yes. your balcony so that is something to look at but if you live in a in a southern climate in a or in a zone. temperate climate california someplace florida where you can grow limes or excuse me where you can grow lemons lemons limes they go together right where you can grow limes that i encourage you lemons, lemons. all right damn it <laughs> <laughs> lemons lemon 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 if you can grow a lemon tree, I would really encourage it. In fact, the place where we stayed um, at Pantheacon had a lemon tree mm. in the backyard, which I visited with a couple of times while I was there. And it has the lemon tree that I experienced there had a really generous spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, it got a little snarky because it was getting ignored by people. Uh, so we so, had... Hey. Bitches, I have lemons here. Exactly. So we did have to go out and make an apology offering to, to the tree. But when I, I went to it and I said, you know, may I, may I pick a lemon from you? It, it allowed me to pick a lemon and it was one of the most fragrant, most beautiful, uplifting scents. I, I mean, it was a gorgeous lemon and it was just this gift from this tree. So if you have access to a lemon tree, Get to know the lemon tree because the one that I, they can be a little sensitive apparently, 
little prima donnas. A little bit of a prima donna. But if you work with them, they are going to work with you. Lemon is a, has a very projective energy. Its elemental sign or, or correlation is first water and then earth, which makes sense because the yeah. juice of the lemon and rounded into the earth. The uh, deities are Oshun, and the lemon is also sacred to any solar deity. Associations include the sun, cleansing, happiness, spring, hope, and love. So talk about the lemony things you make at home because you have lemon oil and you make. Oh God, I I do so much with lemon. Um, Well, for instance, like lemons do. The interesting thing is, even though it resonates with the it. It is uh, connected to the sun. Mm -hmm. It also resonates with the energy of the moon and water, right? So lemons can be used to celebrate lunar deities. And so lemonade, you can make lemonade when you're as an offering. But I like to use lemons for purifying and cleansing. And so that's a lot of what I do with lemon essential oil. Especially right now. Oh, God, right now. Especially with... um, You can use the essential oil. You can use the juice from the lemon. You can, uh, use the lemon leaf in a tea, in a bath, Mm -hmm. uh, if you need to cleanse yourself. You can use the rind from the lemon. And zest. Like, yeah, use the zest. And it is is an excellent cleansing agent, both physically. It makes a wonderful physical shield of cleansing, but also energetically. So you can use it in your spiritual work. You can use it to clean your house. It's you can use it to make invisible sigils for protection. Oh yeah, because you can do that invisible writing with lemon. Exactly, and you can also use it to purify an object, or you can use it to purify your doorway. And in case you want to make sure that negative things are not allowed to come and in, they just smell very uplifting. And it does. It does smell very uplifting. And the fruit of the lemon, you know, the lemon can be used to turn away harmful spells. The easiest way to do that is just you know add it, add the essential oil. And some, uh, you know, into some water with some coconut oil or some other kind of oil. Because it is a caustic oil. Or, or you could just squeeze a lemon over your head in the Yeah, shower. you could squeeze a lemon over your head, a fresh juice. Yeah. Um, you do want to be careful, though, with lemon, especially if you're using the essential oil. It it can be photosensitive. Yeah, that. in fact, all the citrus oils are all, highly yeah. photosensitive. All the citrus oils are highly... Which means uh, if you go out in the sun with the oil on your skin, you'll burn really bad. Yes, exactly. But so it'll you, also bleach your hair out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. Um, it is also very good if you want to boost another spell. You can use it to carry a spell, like as a, as a carrier to increase, to send a spell somewhere. You can, uh-huh. you can use lemon in that way. Um, it absorbs evil energies, but it can also be used in baneful magic. So it, lemon is incredibly versatile. versatile. Yes, incredibly versatile. Just, it protects, but it can also punish. It's stingy. It depends on how, how, how sensitive you are to sours. Exactly. <laughs> and it depends on how you intend to use it. It's just a, lemon is a wonderful option, both magically, physically, and spiritually. Melkor in the Void says, if you squeeze a lemon and the juice hits someone, they're not following social distancing. There you go. <laughs> That's it. Get yourself some lemons, people. Get, and one of the things I've been doing is just taking fresh lemon or lemon essential oil, mm-hmm. putting it in some water and washing down my walls mm-hmm. with it in doorways and doorknobs. Partly to keep the cat from things. <laughs> yes, because that's another thing. They don't like the smell. Cats don't like the scent of lemon. So if they're scratching shit up, like I said, some essential oil. Some lemon oil, water. Some lemon water. Check out some lemons, people. Okay. Rabbit asks, isn't lemon a disinfectant? Yes. 
It is. That's why it's great for cleaning, not mm-hmm. just energetically and spiritually, but yeah, physically. You can use lemon. That's why lemon is in so many cleaners. Yeah. You know, uh, on the in not just because it smells good. Not just because it's it smells not just good, there for the scent. but because it is an excellent cleaner. It's anti, you know, antibacterial properties within the lemon. So gotcha. yes. So that's it for Gwyn's Garden Gems. I did want to ask because I we just I just got back not long ago from PantheaCon. And then also right after that I went to our own convocation, convocation here in Michigan. And one of the things that came up is there has been a lack of people of color as teachers at these events. And there's been a lack of talking about African religious traditions. What is your perspective on that? <laughs> like you said, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, and, and 25 years ago, people would say to me that there was nobody out there teaching it. And, and, and this was to my face when I was out there teaching it. So I really think those people that are trying to say they couldn't find anybody or whatever, you know, I think that that's a bit of a cop out because, you know, there are, are qualified people who are out there teaching it. I think that in a lot of ways, we're not necessarily as welcomed, you know? I mean, when I first started doing events, people would threaten to, you know, shut us down or just cause problems and people would sling racial slurs at me and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, I think there's a a lot of ways, even after all the years I've been in the community as a person of color, as a black person, that it's, still hard for us to gain acceptance in the community. And I really blame the, you know, I mean, maybe they'll never invite me to anything again, but I really blame the people that put these things together because, I mean, you're talking about PantheaCon. I've never been there because I'm a New Yorker and because I, frankly, you know, really, it's just not within my scope to have been able to travel out there. I mean, I know they're one of the few events that doesn't compensate the presenters for their travel money. And I think that that's, if you really value what you're doing, then that's something that has to come into account when you're doing these things, you know, like, are you making it accessible for people? Are you making it accessible for qualified teachers? And a lot of times had organizers tell me they don't have time to check out teachers or, you know, they can't afford to pay teachers or or all of these things. And honestly, what I can say is you get what you pay for, really, you know, what I mean, if you were going to go to university and they weren't, not that they pay university teachers well, but at least they pay them something. I mean, just let anybody teach anybody at university, (laughs) then what would the point be? I mean, I say that as someone who has, you know, two master's degrees, quality of what you're getting when you go and support these things and you don't make the conscious choice. I really think that that's something that people have to be mindful of, not just as as black people or Latinx people, but, you know, people who want to be allies for these people in the community. My next question would be, what can we do to encourage these people who are putting on these events? to bring in to you know to do their research or for suggestions or do we or think whatever. boycotts are effective do we yeah do we think boycotts are effective you know what what do we need to do to make not well maybe that's the wrong word to help to strongly to strongly encourage the pagan pagan and the magical <laughs> communities to embrace multicultural endeavors. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a variety of 
of things you can do. Something as simple as just suggesting somebody that you know that that hopefully knows their stuff or or you respect their stuff and putting their name out there to the organizers and saying you'd like to see it. You know, I mean, if you take part in in one of these events or as an organizer or something, you know, putting those names out there, making sure that those people, you know, at least get compensated for travel money and things like that. I think I know people are going to think I sound money grubbing, but, you know, a lot of authors like myself really can't afford to do some of these events. We've been asked to attend events like sort of outside of our normal range, Mm -hmm. farther than we could drive in a day, basically. And we've had to turn down a lot of those requests because like we just we can't, can't afford it. We can't afford it. We just can't make it happen. Yeah, because it's three people when it's us. You know, we travel together, and we'd have to pay for tickets for all three of us, and uh-huh. you know, to yeah, just even into they, the event. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> weird when they ask you to come speak, and then they don't cop you even into the event. No, that's not right. I'm sorry. Uh, housing, and yeah, exactly. So we <laughs> so get it's expensive to so be a presenter at these things. Exactly. So we get exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. So yeah, so making suggestions and, and. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's important. I think that, you know, the people that are connected on some sort of organizational level or, you know, I think they can obviously do more. I, I think that, I, I think a lot of the controversy that's been surrounding some of these events in recent years are because those people don't really make informed decisions about who they're choosing and who they're putting on the schedule. And, you know, it's, it's, Look, you got you guys. It's not your first rodeo either. It's complicated. (laughs) But I think that if you bother to look and if you bother to talk to people, you can sort of tell that okay, these are people that have you know, these are people that are respected. These are people that are good. These are people that might be more fruitcakey. You know, like let let's move away from the fruitcakey and towards more confident. (laughs) It's time for oats stone. Corner! Thank you. (laughs) Alright, so today I'm going to be talking about Blue Lace Agate. Blue Lace Agate is, uh, like all agates, a variety of chalcedony. So the difference between chalcedony and agate is that agates are banded, and chalcedony is not. Basically. Basically. Okay. Um, basically. Basically. This is a gorgeous piece of... Yes, this is a really beautiful... Is. I, have a, I have here a beautiful specimen of blue lace agate that I got at World of Rocks. So blue lace agate is uh, identified by its very pale blue color, by its translucency. So you can, if you shine a light through it, you can see through especially the edges of the specimen. What distinguishes blue lace agate from other types of blue chalcedony is that it has very, very fine banding in very, very small lace-like layers. Gotcha. Actually, with blue agates, you'll see much broader banding. And blue lace agate builds up slightly differently. So it builds in the ba- the layers of the, of the chalcedony are built up in cavities, mostly in volcanic stone, mostly in Africa. Uh, there are like two mines in Africa where you can get blue lace agate. There's a small, a very, very small deposit in Romania. And I've heard rumors of a new mine for blue lace agate in South America somewhere, but I haven't able, been able to actually find any evidence of its existence. Huh. The two main blue lace agate mines are in Africa, in Namibia, and in South Africa. And I think one of them is actually closed right now. So blue lace agate is 
one of the the rarer agates. You have a fairly large chunk there. I have there. a fairly large, yeah, specimen. It's a, a really, really beautiful piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got some druzy quartz, which is nice. You see that a lot sometimes uh, in the in the layers in between. Yeah, I love uh, the as it fills up. Yeah. yeah, so the beautiful stone. You don't usually find very large specimens of blue agate. Uh, most specimens are relatively small; they can be held in the hand. Uh, so it's often made into beads or small cut stones like cabochons. You mm-hmm. you rarely see blue lace agate uh, in sphere forms. Or as uh, larger sculptural pieces. Can you use it as a pendulum? Do you see that in, in as a like a you know, stone pendulum? You could see uh, a blue lace agate pendulum. I don't think I ever have hmm. seen a blue lace agate pendulum. So agate you often find dyed on the market, but blue lace agate is not dyed as often as other kinds are because it's distinguished by its very pale blue color. There, there is one vein of a darker blue. Blue lace agate in the Namibia mine. It has v- much less distinct striations, but it's a deeper blue color. If you find blue lace agate that's that that's a dark blue color, it's unlikely to actually be from that one specific vein. You've mm. probably got a dyed piece, but that's very unusual to find blue lace agate that's been dyed. Blue lace agate is a little harder than other agates. It's a Mohs 7, usually. Other agates are usually a Mohs 6 to a 6.5. And it fades in sunlight. If it's exposed to sunlight over time, the color can fade, which is true of all agates, especially if they've been dyed. But you'll see that even in undyed specimens of blue lace agate, is that if they're left in the sun and exposed to sunlight over long periods of time, they do start to fade. So keep those in the dark. (laughs) Okay. So blue lace agate is good for a couple of things that I thought were, that I thought would be useful for people in these times. Gotcha. So uh, it's a very gentle stone with a very sort of relaxed energy. It is good for dealing with anxiety and stress. It's not a stress eater. It doesn't eat negativity the way that like obsidian does, but it'll help you sort of break down and address anxiety. Mm. Sort of recognize that especially if it's like a sourceless anxiety that you can't really do anything productive about. Right. Blue lace agate can help you sort of find equilibrium with that so that that's not like the only thing that's consuming your attention. Mm -hmm. It's also uh, a peacekeeping stone. So it's very good to have if you are, if there's like tensions in your household or if you have to have difficult conversations with people, it's really good for calm, straightforward communication, um, for diplomacy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Finding the right words to communicate your intention without being abrasive or upsetting the person you're talking to so that you can come to understandings. Gotcha. We have a question from Kelly. Mm. Can you explain to folks what Druzy is? Okay, so Druzy <laughs> is... Especially when there are banded or layered stones, you'll find inclusions of what's called quartz druzy, which is quartz crystal that grows between the layers, essentially. And it creates these little distinct crystalline structures in the stone that are distinct from the the surrounding structure of the stone. Uh, And they can be very, very pretty. So some there there are there are mixed opinions on Druzy. Some people find quartz Druzy very very attractive, and some people find that it detracts from the quality or, or the appearance of the stone. So you'll find different people who handle it in different ways. Some people will cut around Druzies. Sometimes people will frame a, a, a cut stone so that the Druzy is really emphasized. It really depends. Gotcha. That's it for Oz Stone Corner. 
there's a book coming out May 1st. Right, yeah. Right? Yes, yeah. That's so, what we're here for. Right? That's what so, we're here for. Okay. <laughs> Let's get to the book. Something you did mention in this book, because Carr Gwynn and I received an advanced copy of this book so we could read it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something you mentioned in this book is that there's a lot of syncretism in voodoo especially and in uh, African traditional religions. How does that, like mesh with modern sort of ongoing syncretism, do you think, Uh, especially between ATRs and other traditions? I think it's different because I think that the reason the initial Christian syncretism came to be was because it was in places where the religion was completely Mm -hmm. suppressed. You know, I mean, a lot of the statuary that you'll see used in Lukumi or, or Santeria, is hollow and what they would do is put the you know religious items up inside the statue so then during the parades or if it was on the altar or the shrine then they knew that the sacred items were in there you know and and just in the same way that I explained the concept of ashe and things having sacred energy you know for them somebody like Santa Barbara can be seen as Shango because that energy is the same color it's red and white together it has to do with the primal forces of male and feminine, you know, doing this sacred dance throughout the universe. So, you know, you could see these connections and that's, and the statues were readily available. I think that's very different nowadays where people are, and I, I think if people do it respectfully, that's fine, but I think there's a lot of people are shortcutting things mm-hmm. now. You know, you mentioned earlier about being a solitary or being self-initiated and that really doesn't come into play that much in these systems because you really do need somebody to help guide you. You know, I, I always liken it to cooking in the sense that like some people are definitely allergic to peanuts. Some people eat peanuts 10 times a day and could live off of peanuts. You know what I mean? So you need that kind of spiritual teacher to help show you this is something that's going to be okay. And this is something that might be really dangerous for you in that situation. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things in the religion that are very intense and very powerful and in that way could be dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In that book, you are you offer a lot of information about how people can get to know these these deities, these these goddesses and really are are very specific in setting up shrines and altars and cleansing and various different types of things. Um, can you go a little more into what was the reason for writing this book? What was your intention? Well, I mean, I've written a lot of books, but this is the one I really wanted to write. I did. I did. I wanted to write this book for a very long time. You know, just my connection to the different energies and things that I present in this book, because I think it's very empowering for people to know about these things that history has suppressed for so long. So many of these things that were, you know, demonized and demoralized and destroyed, I think, by, you know, male-dominated culture Mm -hmm. for so long that I just wanted to have this be something that people could really, you know, get in touch with. And the reason I include, I'm sure some people are going to have a problem with the fact that I include so many things about, oh, okay, well, here's this, you know, spiritual bath that's, you know, associated with Oshun, or here's this other kind of, you know, magical item that you can make for the Loa or the Orisha. And 
the reason I put it in there again, I'm coming back to this concept of Ashe, but you know, somebody might feel a connection to Oshun. They might want to be able to have a teacher. Well, one of the ways to do that would be to leave her some offerings to take a ritual bath and to seek a teacher, not in a self initiation kind of way, but just looking for guidance from the universe, you know, and which way you're supposed to turn. I remember, I don't know if she's going to listen to this, but I had somebody at one of my workshops a long time ago and they went to the sea, her and her whole coven, and they spelled out Yemayan seashells and the water came in and then it rolled back out again and the shells spelled pizza. So they all went for pizza. (laughs) That is cool. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, she forgot about that. I saw her last summer and I hadn't seen her for 10 years. She was like, wow, I forgot about that. I was like, yeah, you know, but you know, it was just this kind of mother goddess, Yemaya nourishing moment, humor to inject into this situation. And I always thought it was so mm-hmm. beautiful. The book wasn't really, all of those things wasn't as a shortcut. It was just, you know, steps that you can take to get those things, you know, and, and I did have some sort of, I'm going to say dialogue with the, uh, publishers that be about, you know, really telling people that it's not a tradition of, you know, self-initiation. And I'm not saying that to scare people. I'm just saying it's, it's so much benefit, you know, like I spend a lot of time around a lot of my friends have young kids. I spend a lot of time around young kids, you know, and when young kids want to cook something, they don't necessarily know what goes into it. They could grab some salt and they could grab some hot peppers and, but, you know, I don't want to eat that. (laughs) that's great for them (laughs) but if I show them that oh well how about we use cinnamon on our toast instead of you know cayenne pepper maybe that would be better you know that's going to be better for everybody in that circumstance and it's the same kind of thing just showing people how to put different things together showing people how their own mind body and spirit works for them and what's the best way for them Mm -hmm. to move forward Ode at one point made pancakes with a green uh, icing. icing on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. When they were younger. So. All right. Yeah. Uh, totally it was because I was left alone in a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Unsupervised. It was a cooking experience. Uh-huh. At yeah. the age of 10. It wasn't very good. <laughs> nope. But I ate it. Because <laughs> that's what you do as a dad. This is great. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. It was not. It was not oh great. Hi, this is Estrella Taylor. I'm the author of Intuitive Witchcraft, and you're listening to Three Pagans and a Cat. Cars, feast, table. Cars, feast, table. <laughs> All right, so um, I am going to be talking about uh, Marie Laveau's bourbon bread pudding, oddly enough, from Lilith Dorsey's book that we just hey! talked about. Her book, her book, so, her book. So good. All right, so there are a couple of things to do here, and um, for those of you all listening, this is the first time you're going to hear this because the book's not out yet. Mm-hmm. So here is, this is actually Lilith's recipe. Oh, cool. So first you make a bourbon sauce, which is going to take a quarter of a cup of butter, a quarter of a cup of sugar, half of a fresh vanilla bean, Madagascar preferably, mm-hmm. uh, one egg yolk beaten, three tablespoons of bourbon, or more, depending on who you are. <laughs> two teaspoons of grated lime peel, two teaspoons of grated lemon peel, and two tablespoons of orange juice. And then you're going to melt that butter in a saucepan over a low heat. Add the sugar, vanilla bean, egg yolk, two tablespoons of water, and cook, stirring constantly until all the sugar dissolves and the mixture begins to boil, which takes three to four minutes. Okay. You remove that from the heat. 
take out the vanilla bean, stir in the bourbon, the citrus peels, and the orange juice. While you're doing that, because I know you all can multitask, <laughs> you're going to take four slices of sweet bread, a third a cup of cream cheese, one and three quarter cups of light cream, three eggs that have been beaten, and half a cup of light brown sugar. And you're going to preheat your oven to 325 degrees, spread the cream cheese on the bread to make two sandwiches. Hmm. All right. Then you're going to cut each sandwich into one inch cubes and place them in a baking dish. Combine the cream and the eggs and mix well. Pour them over the bread cubes. Bake for about 40 minutes or until the toothpick inserted in the center comes out clean. Remove it from the oven while still slightly warm. You pour over your bourbon sauce and you add some fresh whipped cream. Well, that sounds fucking great. Doesn't it? (laughs) And again, that is from Lilith Dorsey's book, which is coming out in May 1st. Yep. So you definitely want to get to get this book because that's the kind of stuff she includes in this book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks to our patron Solanox Silverstar for telling us about Weavers of the Web. At Weavers of the Web, their mission is to provide a community that supports public ritual structures so that all Wiccans can celebrate and worship together at all ages and stages of life. They offer public rituals observing the wheel of the year and the tides of the moon community education and Wiccan beliefs and practices, and they are, they are a faith-based community that nurture families and solitaries alike so that you never need to be alone again. They are currently doing their stuff online. Mm-hmm. So be sure to check out Weavers of the Web at weaversoftheweb.org. You've really created this book for people who are curious or who are interested or feel called by some of the deities that you've mentioned in the book. And um, this is a way for them to kind of get to know them or a kind of way to reach out or maybe find out if this is something they should explore by finding a teacher, would you say? Yeah, definitely. But there's also a lot of things in there. You know, I mean, I belong to a lot of different traditions. You know, I do have a mambo, uh, Bonnie Devlin, who is a girl mambo in Haitian Vodou, you know, and I also belong to a Lakumi house. Uh, Oshun Olakari Alaye is my priestess in that tradition she just passed last year unfortunately but um that's unusual i mean i it's not the kind of thing where people run out and get an initiation in a bunch of different (laughs) traditions uh the reason that i did it was because um well i had belonged to the new orleans voodoo spiritual temple and then i was living in uh rhode island and um, I'd had some personal tragedies and then all of a sudden I was teaching at a UU church and they called me up and they said, well, Bonnie Devlin's going to be the minister at the UU church. And I was, we've got you a voodoo priestess and a drummer to come every week <laughs> for Sunday service. It wasn't just for me. It was the whole congregation, but, uh, and she actually went to Harvard divinity too. So I just love her. She's a wonderful woman, but you know, to be able to have the chance to work with her at that time in my life, that was just so difficult and to have somebody there that's, how it ended up happening like that. The same situation caused me to join my Lakumi house because I had a situation where I had a civil suit um, against uh, a very powerful entity. And the only way I could get that resolved because of all the wrongs that had been done to me was to go to this friend of mine who also happened to be a Santera and knew the different rituals and rites and offerings to make so that I would be successful and get justice for this, Mm -hmm. you know, really tragic situation I was going through. So I think that I wrote the book 
knowing that I come from all those different traditions, but that that's a rarity. And somebody might be in Haitian voodoo and they might want to go to a New Orleans voodoo ceremony and they might want to know, oh, what's going to be the same? What's going to be different? What's going to be, you know, what should I wear? What should I bring? What should I expect, you know? And in a way, that's what my first book, Voodoo and Afro-Caribbean Paganism, was about. But this just goes into so much more detail and really focuses on those kind of lesser-known divine feminine entities that we haven't really heard that much about. Now, Gwyn earlier called these deities, but in the oh, book, you mentioned that there that's not necessarily the right term to use for all of them. That's Can you point. describe the difference between... Um, the Orishas, the Lua, gods, how are those categorized? What's, what, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. It's really complicated. <laughs> and I think I have to start by saying, you know, it's not, and you, you get this in a lot of pagan traditions as well, you know, I mean, you might have somebody who's the head of ADF or somebody who's the head of Obad, but then there's different groves and each grove does its own thing. It's kind of in the same way like that. Or there's a lot of witches out there, but there's no, despite Angelica Houston or whatnot, there isn't a witch queen who tells us all what to do or anything like that. It's more organized. Yeah, right. The the Supreme is going to come. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, each one is autonomous. So each each different house or, you know, Kunfor or whatever operates autonomously. So the priest and priestess or the Mambo or Hungan or the Santera, the Santera, the Babalao in that house is right and always right for all the people that are attached to that house in any circumstance. So the reason... I sort of explain that, yes, Orisha and Loa can be seen as gods and goddesses, but there are certainly some houses that would say that's 100% wrong. Orisha literally means, I was talking about Ashe, it comes from the word Ori, which is head, and Ashe, which I just talked about. So it talks about the sacred energy of your head, because we believe that each of these divine energies rule your head in a way and and guide you throughout your life. And then there's also ones that rule your feet, but they're also still called Orisha. That's just how (laughs) it goes. Loa in the same way in Haitian Vodou, they're called Loa, which again has to, there really isn't a, a decent translation for it. It's more that these are just the divine or sacred forces in the universe. There's a lot of people, especially in Haitian Vodou, who don't like to think of them as deities because they're also Christian in addition to worshiping Haitian Vodou. So for them, it's blasphemous to consider them as gods or goddesses. And the reason I make the distinction in the book is I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to be blasphemous about the system or just, you know, comparing this to something else. It really does operate in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. It sounds... Like it does, absolutely. You also talk about the elevation of people in the book. Marie Laveau. Yeah, Marie Laveau. When we were at, I think it was last year, Priestess Miriam and Utu, witch doctor. Yes. They, uh, the elevation of Tichba. The they, they elevated her to the first American witch, or witch mother, rather. Witch mother, yeah. The first American witch mother. I think there was also an elevation for Harriet Tubman that we've attended. Yes. So can, yep. so can you tell us a little bit about what elevation is 
<laughs> I was like, I can't speak for Utu. Um, you do talk about yeah. some figures in the book who are who elevated, elevated humans. So yeah, so just in maybe in general, what? Okay, so basically anybody in these traditions can become divine, and that's really what that elevation is talking about. That if after you've passed enough people still remember you, they still leave offerings to you, they set up altars or shrines to you, they sort of, you know, let your magic and mystery and name live on despite the fact that they've passed just like Marie Laveau, then they become elevated and eventually they become a Loa or a Risha. Because when we talk about all the Loa and Arisha, it doesn't matter what ATR tradition you're talking about. You know, we talk about Shango, who can be traced back to the fourth century BCE in the West African region. You know, he's, there's actually written records of Shango going back that far. So we think, okay, so what is that? That's like, it's 2020 and 400 years before that. So for 2,400 years, Shango has been elevated and worshipped and made offerings to just as the sort of ashe of fire. So that's how the elevation goes. And in Marie Laveau's case, we're talking about just the past maybe, you know, 100 or so years where she was honored and elevated higher and higher okay. up. So that's pretty much how it goes. I mean, my godkids always make jokes that they're going to leave me White Castle <laughs> cigarettes that's something you mentioned in the book too you talk about creating uh shrines and altars but you also talk about leaving offerings that mean something to the to the loa or the orisha or the ancestor leave relevant leave relevant offerings not just general offerings something that would be meaningful to them yeah i think you know that's another reason why we have teachers you know i know one famous author who decided that she was just gonna make it all up and started throwing very expensive jewelry into the river for Oshun, you know, like that's just, you could, you know, whatever. Why don't you just burn your money, crazy lady? You know, like that's not how it's done. <laughs> There's a very specific set of offerings that the Loa and Arisha take, you know, and that's usually, you know, it's determined by tradition. It's also determined by circumstance and readings and all of these things that go into it. It's kind of like, you know, if you had, I used to say the queen or whatever, whoever else was coming over that you might have some sort of, your grandmother or your great grandmother was coming over, you'd want to have their favorite foods. You'd want to have their favorite alcohol. You'd want to have, you know, a bed that was nice for them to sleep in. It's the same kind of thing. You're inviting an honored guest to your home, to your energy, to your space, and you want to find out what it is that they want before they get there. You know, otherwise they might get angry. <laughs> yeah, you know? and I, I used to be in between jobs and was a landscape architect at a cemetery. Mm-hmm. So basically a grave digger. One of the things that I noticed was there were certain graves mm-hmm. that people would leave stuff on every whatever night it was. So, I mean, yeah. it was like a weekly event. So like I knew one guy who was buried there was a former biker. And so we'd always find a joint and a beer sitting there for him. There was a tomb we called baby Jesus mm-hmm. and there were always things left for them. So and they were very specific and they were weekly. Consistent. 
consistently done. So, you know, as a, as a worker on those, we left them for a week. Yeah. Um, so we would let them set out there and then we would clean them up knowing that they were coming back right. in, a week. <laughs> in a week. Yeah. So, so, and um, you, and you mentioned okay. that, um, this really offerings and things, this is really a daily practice. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get to a certain level, it's a daily practice. It's certainly been a daily practice for me for, you know, 20 plus years. You know, you were talking about Utu before. Last time I saw him, we went to Rick James's grave and left him a bunch <laughs> of stuff, <laughs> cigarettes and liquor. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. Kelly uh, in the Discord is asking, can Lilith explain what she means by her kids or children? Are these devotees? I feel like that was the idea I got when I heard her speak before. Oh, I'm talking about my god kids. So I'm their godmother and they're my god kids. And pretty much they made me count not that long ago. I think I have 22 god children. And uh, they get a head washing with me. And then maybe about a little more than half of them have gone further and done more initiations with me. So I think some of them have been around for a very long time. Um, actually, it's my godson Tehran's birthday today. And uh, I think I want to say he turns 31 and he's been with me for about 13 or 14 well, years now. Happy birthday to him. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very yeah. cool. So, so again, this goes back to they are members of your house and you, you are, you are essentially yeah. their teacher, their mother. They're, you're responsible. You're, for they're, them. you're responsible for their spiritual and overall well-being. Yeah. Yeah. I wish they did their <laughs> dishes, but I suppose that's a mommy thing to say. <laughs> Fair enough. I get it. Uh, Kelly asked, do they come to you through your path? Yeah. Your so path? do they come to you through, uh, your religion. Your religion or are they Or do you pick them up kids do you pick them kids? up randomly at the grocery <laughs> store? <laughs> no, they're all they've all been interested in their religion and then you know, usually what I do if somebody's interested is we do a reading first, you know, to see whether or not it's the best idea for them to proceed or if they should, you know, go somewhere else or stay here or, you know, that whole kind of thing. But most of them too, I think yeah, almost all of them were were doing some kind of magic or witchcraft before they showed up here. So it was more that they were seeking and trying to find exactly what, you know, tradition would be helpful for them. And then they come and they meet me and they meet the rest of everybody. And it's it's really funny. I, I think probably because I've been to school a lot, God kids are, you know, I've got one that went to Yale and another that went to Harvard. And I was like, don't fight, don't fight in the living room. So, but we're all very, <laughs> we're all very booky kind of, you know what I mean? We're all very that uh-huh. kind of thing. That's cool. You know, That's so very cool. Academic house. Really well. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Something I was curious about is why you decided to focus on feminine energies in this book sort of exclusively. Well, I mean, I think I've mentioned before, I think it's something that hasn't received so much attention in the ATR communities. I think there's a lot of machismo that goes on. You know, there's a lot of things that have sort of, especially in the past 200 years, there were a lot of changes in the past maybe 200, 150 years where a lot of the power that was originally given to women in the tradition has sort of drifted away and been given to Babalawos. There's, um, Babalawos are the high priests in the Kumi or Ifa and they are not ever women, you know, um, I, there were, 
equal sort of levels of initiation that were given to women again, you know, and, and still can be, but uh, it's, it's not really seen the same way in the tradition. So I think that there's sort of been a slippage of feminine power in the traditions. And I wanted to sort of refocus it back to where I feel historically it originally was, you know, I mean, and originally this book was even not only going to be just having ATR goddesses, it had, you know, there was way more stuff about Brige and Hecate and Lilith and all of that, you know, so stuff that had been again, you know, destroyed and suppressed for hundreds of years that I wanted to really sort of embrace and give equal mm-hmm. time to. Mm-hmm. And in adjacent line of inquiry what's the so if there are high priests who are always men right uh in african traditional religions what's the sort of non-binary situation in african traditional religions what's that look like (laughs) it's very i think because of the machismo the machismo that we get in lakumi or santeria and stuff like that i think that there is definite evidence in some of the sacred stories and things like that. I mentioned before Shango, who is known to, there's a a Pataki or sacred story about how Shango puts on a dress in this kind of, you know, gender fluid kind of way, but people don't like people to talk about that because it's sort of seen as, as blasphemous. And, and I mentioned before the high priests are Babalawos and Babalawos by definition are not supposed to be, well, it can't be a woman and it, it can't be a gay man either. It can't be a gender fluid person. Like there's all these things that go into it that are sort of, I think again, later, additions to the religion based on societal norms and conformity and things like that. So, um, but New Orleans voodoo is just definitely looser about that. Haitian voodoo, it's not really talked about even, I think, because again, there was a lot of stigmas about it and things like that. It was just one of those things that existed, but people didn't really sort of recognize it or give it the attention that it deserved. It was more of just something that people were just going to sort of ignore it. I think that that's there, but, and there's been a lot of controversy certainly in the past couple of years when people will try and say something about Shango or say something about Oya again, who's another one who, who ends up with definitely, you know, Pataki's or sacred stories that are very fluid about um, that energy and how it manifests. So it's problematic. There's, there's no question. You mentioned earlier about syncretism with Christianity is pretty prevalent in these religions and traditions. Do you think that has something to do with this? With, with where that, where uh, that has patriarchal led? imbalances come from? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, I have a good friend who's a, a you know, and the way he's always, you know, explained it to me was that, and the, this is going to sound harsh, but the taboo really isn't against gay sex. It's more about being a bottom. So again, that to me definitely seems like some sort of, you know, misogynistic Christian kind of uh, belief system there that they're shoving on people, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely sounds like that they kind of that into just, it, just, yeah. that attitude into it. Yeah. So. With that, with the idea that there is that, you know, syncretism, do you see a way forward where things could become more fluid for non, you know, non-binary people, for, you know, for women within well, and, this and, tradition? And what's the, like, what's the situation for 
for men, for heterosexual yeah. men who want to connect with these feminine energies. Yeah, exactly. I think that, I mean, there are certainly a lot of them. I know a lot of them that are dedicated to these feminine energies and stuff like that. And, and I think that it's not really a problem for them. I know gay men that connect with these feminine energies and do reach the rank of Babalawo and what they usually end up doing is being celibate rather than moving forward with their former sexual choices. And uh, I can't make a decision about anybody's choices one way or another, but that's what I see happening more often than not in the situation. But it's hard to say. I mean, I think that a lot of younger people who are joining the tradition, they don't like having any rules at all. And I think that there's, you know, obviously I agree to the umpteenth degree with anybody who has a LGBTQIA cause. Um, I think that I don't really see too much hope of it not really still being a thing in the tradition because there's so many other things that are things in the tradition that have not fallen by the wayside over the years. And there's so much infighting. And I mean, for those of you who aren't familiar with the community, you thought witches fought. No, they don't fight anything like ATR people fight. Like it's ugly. It's ugly. And it goes on for hundreds of years, you know? So I think that having any kind of resolution in a positive way in the near future. I, I'm, I don't know. I wish I could be optimistic about it, but I'm not, I'm not at all. Um, I do think that again, like I said, New Orleans voodoo is definitely much more, you know, lighter about it. My own house, you know, I have a lot of God kids that are definitely, um, describe themselves as LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like, you know, individual houses make their, do what they need to do for their kids. Yeah, that's, that's it. Because, you know, we operate, like I said, as an autonomous thing, you know, but then we're also, our reputation is based on who we are and what we do. So that's, that's kind of, again, like a family. Oh, well, you know, whatever. Jimmy from down the street is one of these. I grew up with this, you know, those are the girls that go up and down the fire escape at 3 a.m. Don't trust them, you know, like, so you get blamed on your family's right. reputation or you get applauded by your family's reputation. Now, how did, how did you choose those that you focused on in the book? Those, I think there was Oshun, yeah. yeah, the Orishas, the Luai. Yeah. How did you choose which ones? Cause there are so many and you said there were some that you just couldn't include. So how did you choose the ones that you did? I mean, obviously I was going to include Oshun because I'm a daughter of Oshun and, and you know, she just, yeah, that's, that's how life is over here. I'm in Ocean. But I, I tried to pick the ones that people were more familiar with. You know, um, for a long time, people couldn't talk about anything about these. So I think there are people, even within the tradition, that are still uh, discovering things. Um, in the book, I talk about a friend of mine, uh, Reva Neary Presil, who's, it's also her birthday today. <laughs> And um, she was in the New York Times article for her Fet Gay Day where she performed. So I think that it was just so beautiful to be able to attend it. And it was so amazing for me to finally see an open Vodou event in the New York Times and getting the, you know, beautiful recognition and uh, accolades that Riva really deserves and, and fought for you know, so hard, like so many of us, you know, so that was beautiful. But I think that the reason I brought that up is because she did a little quiz where she was talking about different energies, you know, and it was, 
it was interesting because even though there were so many people attending that event, there were people really didn't know and understand the religion to the depths that I would have expected, you know, at, at an event like that. So, you know, like she would ask questions and maybe only two people out of the 200 that were there knew the answer. So I think that it's interesting that somebody could know their tradition, which they do, but again, it's very narrow focus. Maybe they know Urzuli Frida because their grandmother worshiped Urzuli Frida, or they know Aizan because when they first went to the spiritual house of their, you know, godmother or godfather, it was dedicated to Aizan and they saw those things there. So, I mean, I think that there's just so much that there's still really only a handful that are known to people. And I could have put them all in the book, but then it would have been a crazy, gigantic book. So I just did the ones that people are more familiar with, more likely to come across. I want to say, I just, I really enjoyed all the profiles and all the information that you put in there about all of these different Orisha and, and voodoo queens. And mm-hmm. I really appreciated my mom, Brigitte, and being in there. Uh, I'm a devotee of Brigid. And so I appreciated the information about Brigid that you shared in there. You know, we've read the book. Yep. All mm-hmm. three of us have read the book. Absolutely. Yep. And so <laughs> normally when we do a review, so I guess, I, <laughs> should I sing it? <laughs> okay, do real quick, real quick. It's time for the reviews. Okay. All right, we're reviewing, you can probably guess, <laughs> Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens, The Divine Feminine in the African Religious Traditions by uh, Lilith, Lilith Dorsey. Lilith Dorsey. <laughs> and I have to say, I really, really enjoyed your book, Lilith. Again, I'm going to be reading it again because there's so much information, information packed in this book. And I felt it's really like well laid out. It's very well laid out. I felt like you made it very accessible for someone like me who can't even remember the fucking title. Right. <laughs> well, uh, and, and like to learn more. <laughs> and like I started with zero foundation in yeah, any exactly. of these goddesses. The the profiles uh, were really really interesting. They were. Uh, they were there were good descriptions of sort of the stories and where they came mm-hmm. from and what they mean and what they do and ways to connect with them and, and lots of really interesting recipes. And I. I really liked the introduction, how you explained like the difference between an altar and a shrine and different methods of cleansing and why you should cleanse and all these different things that you laid out in preparation for getting to know these, these goddesses and, and uh, creating shrines or altars that work for them. And it was very interesting. Now there was one downside for me with this book, which is that it didn't have a bibliography and source citations in the text, but it did have (laughs) A very nice recommended reading list at the end, which I did appreciate. And, and a, a couple book. of really great and a couple appendices. Of some great, uh, excellent appendices. appendices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And a glossary. And yeah. a glossary. Yeah. Pronunciation, which, which I always is, appreciate. Yes, because I'm terrible at pronunciation, much like my husband. I have a degree in broadcast journalism. <laughs> okay, okay. But it's <laughs> so, um, I love the book. Uh, it's, it's not one for my library, right. personally, mm-hmm. but I think the book was very well laid out. From a book standpoint, it's a great book. Solid. From, Solid. from the writing in it, it's a great book. Mm-hmm. It, it's not something I'd put on my, on my shelf. Right. It's not relevant to your it's practice. It's not relevant but, to my practice. Mm-hmm. But that said, if it's relevant to your practice, please buy the damn book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I pick this one up. We, we, I would definitely We like always to rate them. Yep. So out of five stars. So I'm going to say it's a solid four from me. I give it a four stars. I'm giving it 4.5 because okay. again, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a green witch. I'm devoted to three different goddesses, but I felt like I could use this book and learn from it more about other goddesses and right. stuff. And so it really meant a lot to me. Plus I just love 
you know, Marie Laveau. So, Marie Laveau. All right. So I think we're at a 4.25. Yes. So yeah. 4.25 stars on that from the three pagans and a cat. So you that means you can buy the book. You can get pre-order it the on Amazon. Book. Yeah. Pre-order it on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback versions. It is available on May 1st, 2020. Yep. Although let me just say that the majority of the time they show up a little bit earlier than that on Amazon for Kindle for whatever reason. Because uh, they cheat. Now, <laughs> be aware though, because of the situation that we're in with coronavirus, shipping, and, yeah. shipping of a physical copy. Kindle maybe, may be better. That, yeah, right. Kindle may be a better choice because they're, they're prioritizing emergency <laughs> stuff. Yep. So I'm just throwing that out there. You might want to go with the Kindle. Is there an audiobook available? Yes, they just finished recording the audiobook, I think last week. So that should be available as well if people, again, don't want to worry about waiting for the physical copy. The audiobooks. Audiobooks, I love audiobooks, so that's perfect. I'm going to be getting it on audiobook. So in case you haven't figured it out, and it's not just because Lilith is our guest and listening as we say that. I'll be brutal. No, we love this book. We recommend this book. Get the fucking book. Yeah, okay. get this one. If it's relevant to your practice. Yeah, very, very much. Or if you're curious. Or if you're curious, yeah, get it, put it in your library. I think it's it's really fabulous. And know that Lilith has other books that you can explore as well. Yep. So that's it for the reviews. So I just want to say thank you so much, Lilith, for joining our crazy (laughs) (laughs) and our questions. And uh, giving us such great answers because it, it really has helped us understand uh, a little more, about a little bit more traditions. Exactly. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was so much fun. Yay! 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 <laughs> and, uh, you stay safe and be well. Hopefully, have a, you have a good book launch in spite good, of the pandemic. <laughs> and then that's the other thing. You can't. You know, we need to help Lilith with this book launch. So mm-hmm. yes. You know. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And now, a musical coda to this episode with lyrics by Chris Franklin, performed by Robert E. Kelly, and presented on this podcast with permission in the ardent hope that all members of the Pride will follow its advice and remember the official stance of three-pack during this pandemic. Thank you to Chris Franklin for these lyrics. The world has caught a virus, so I've written you a poem. We need your help to cure it, so stay the fuck at home. And if you have got 12 kids or you're living on your own, lock it down and isolate and stay the fuck at home. If you think you're not at risk here, you're living in a dome. It spreads faster than a hooker's leg, so stay the fuck at home. I need the gym, I need the beach, I hear you bitch and moan. You need to grow a brain cell and stay the fuck at home, but I feel fine. I don't feel sick I'll go out on my own How thick are you, you selfish prick Please just stay the fuck at home From L.A. through to Berlin, from Wuhan through to Rome There's people dying every day, so stay the fuck at home If you need to contact family, use Facebook, Skype, or phone We got the fucking internet, so stay the fuck at home The only way to slow it down is isolate, not roam. Please help the world get back on track and stay the fuck at home. Stay the fuck at home. Stay the fuck at home. Don't you be a fucking dick. Please stay the fuck at home. Stay the fuck at home.
You've been listening to Three Pagans and a Cat. Find out more information at www.threepagansandacat.com.